people, personalities, hiring, and the future. These are big things that businesses have to adapt to, adjust to. You got to be able to build trust. You got to be able to build a team and you need the right team with the right people. We talk a lot about that today on this episode of Building a Business That Lasts. I have Ira Wolf. He has been in business for 40 years. He runs his current business, which he's been in for over 25 years. And he calls himself a millennial trapped in a baby boomer body. He said he's been dancing with change his entire professional life. We dig into personality types, how to hire well, things to consider in the process. Gosh, if you're looking to build a team, build trust, or just communicate better and build better relationships, I think you're going to absolutely love this conversation. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Ira. Hey, real quick, I know I said that the conversation was about to start, but before it does, I wanted to share something really important with you. Mike Tyson once said that everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I don't know about you, but 2020 has kind of felt like a punch in the mouth. It can feel like you're dizzy, you're out of control, you're even on your back in business. But I know you, the entrepreneur, the business owner, the leader, you're the kind of person who's going to get back up off the mat. But what are you going to do next? The next step, the next plan matters a lot. That's why we're doing a live event in March. Yes, we're planning a live event of real people in person. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. March 29th and 30th here in St. Augustine, Florida. Now, this is going to be a pretty exclusive event because we're only selling 150 tickets. I'm telling you about it now first here on the podcast. If you want to grab a seat, you want to secure your place so you can be amongst another 150 other business owners, entrepreneurs, and leaders. And I am going to teach my business growth framework that's going to be brand new rolling out next year based on my last 21 years of year-over-year business growth, even in the midst of this pandemic. So how do you get your seat? Go to businessbuilderslive.com. Like I said, tickets are going to sell out fast. You got to get there, grab your seat. I hope they're still available when you listen to this. And I cannot wait to see you in March here in sunny St. Augustine, Florida. Now, here's the actual podcast. Hey, Ira, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. Hope everyone's well. <laughs> Absolutely. So I was uh, reading through your bio as I was preparing for this show, and this really caught my eye. It said that you have been described as a millennial trapped in a baby boomer body and the world's first chief Googleization officer. What does that mean? Uh, it's a mouthful. It's a lot. Uh, so uh, you can see from the body, definitely a baby boomer. However, as opposed to thinking about retirement and slowing down and, uh, you know, whether it's spending more time on the golf course or traveling, obviously a little challenging this year. I'm in gear. I look at the world as I got a lot to live, not for, but there's a lot more going on. Just brought on a new assessment, uh, working with some startups. My mindset's much more of, uh, you know, looking at uh, I'm 20 or 30 and have a a whole, you know, many, many decades in front of me, which I hopefully do. But certainly the, the body reminds me uh, pretty regularly that, uh, hey, you're not 20 anymore. So <laughs> so what do you mean by the uh, title of chief Googleization officer? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I, I've written a couple books for anybody that follows me. Go up and just search for Ira Wolf and you'll, you'll find me. But I, in uh, 2000, for, for those of you who were around back then, uh, in the mid 2000s, uh, you know, everybody was talking about the, the four, four or five generations in the workplace. Certainly the boomers were supposed to be retiring. Uh, we had Gen X and then we had the millennials and everybody was pretty hard on the millennials. So I used to get a question on what do I think? Uh, I, I've written a lot for kind of rolling back even further. I've written a lot about workforce trends beginning 20, 25 years ago. I've I've published a lot about it. So people, the most common question I was getting was, hey, what do you think about all the, what do you think about these millennials? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I put out a book, it was called Geeks, Geezers, and the original title was Geeks, Geezers, and Technology, and didn't sort of resonate with me. So I looked around and I I, I honestly don't remember the, the aha moment when it came out, but I read it somewhere about Googleization. 
And uh, the alliteration work, excuses, Googleization, kind of stuck with me. The book was about uh, old, the wired, the tired, and technology and the convergence of that, how everybody got together. The Googleization just stuck. And then I uh, did a fair amount of speaking, and, and I was publishing another book. And I walked into a conference, and somebody called me the – said, oh, you're the Google guy. And I was like, oh, wow, what a cool title. Except that I wasn't going up against the Google, the real Google guys from, from Google. Wasn't going to infringe on that. And uh, so I just, you know, kind of adopted the Googleization guy. And uh, that's so, you know, it, in the business, I uh, just became chief Googleization officer uh, because everybody was talking about uh, my, you know, as I talked about how technology was changing things. So. Kind of a long way around there, but uh, you sort of adopted the title. It stuck. It got your attention. Gets a lot of people's attention. And uh, you know, ultimately, I think a lot of companies are going to have to have something like that. Whether they call it the chief Googleization officer, the chief adaptability officer, the chief experience officer, the chief. You know, we now have CTOs, chief technology officers. That's what it is. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think it is great to use titles like that, things that kind of engage attention, because we always say, especially in marketing, you know, the, the first job is to get people's attention. If you can't get their attention, you can't do anything else. I noticed, you know, just looking through your resume, you, you've been in business for over 25 years. You got a ton of experience, especially in the HR recruiting, hiring space. And I think this is a place where a lot of small businesses, especially, really struggle. I know I did. I mean, I when I first started hiring, I had no idea what I was doing. I really did a bad, bad job because I'm just trying to put a warm body in a seat and that's not usually the best choice. And so thinking about uh, recruiting and hiring specifically, because you have so much experience in that space, I'd love to dig into that subject here because I think it'll be really helpful for people. What are some of the things that that you see right now, especially there, there's so much change happening in the world right now. So what, what do you see right now that's going to change as it relates to job searches and hiring you know, over the next few years? Wow, lot lot to unpack there. So, uh, yeah, I've had this business for 25 years, and and so I ended up. Uh, what the intent was not necessarily to be in the pre-hire, pre-employment assessment business, but I found out that my one of my passions was assessment diagnostics. But if you roll the clock back even prior to that, because I've been in business about 40 years, again the baby boomer body thing, uh, I I started my career as a dentist. And I did not have the typical view of what a dental practice was supposed to look like. In fact, uh, at one point uh, early on, I was thinking about having multiple offices, multiple locations, and we can get to why I got out of dentistry. But, you know, ultimately, my business model was always pretty simple. And that's what's been consistent, building the business to last or working with startups was one is having a good team of people. Having consistency, turnover is horrible for organizations, whether we're, we're living in a digital world or a face-to-face world. Being able to walk into a business and there is a consistency for people that still appreciate the, the, that face-to-face, that personal side, even if it's on a phone call or a Zoom call, is that there's a film familiarity there. So hiring people that not only are the right people, but that are loyal and they're going to stay there. And and that means in order to do so, they have to be doing their job, but they also have to have some type of camaraderie, some team play, some teamwork, some focus. So I've done that from the beginning. Where did that come from? Um, You know, obviously in, in professional school, I don't ever remember taking a business course. I did come from a retail background. Um, that's what was my parents, it was my grandparents, it was my aunts and uncles. And they all had these small retail businesses in uh, small communities in Pennsylvania. And the one thing, there was a consistency. Um, I think every one of my relatives that had that business, and even in the community, there were people that were employed there for a career for their entirety. And you did appreciate walking into these businesses with that. Now, with that, with the same faces, with the same names. I think people are longing for that. So hiring people that not only do, you know, not only can do the job, but can fit into the culture, can shape that is incredibly important. I don't think, you know, frankly, as much as everything's changed over 40 years of my adult career, I don't think that has. But like you said, you know, when you start out a business, you're not very good at it. I certainly made some mistakes. I hired people because they had the right title. They had the degree. They were available. 
I rarely did they ever work out when you just hired a warm body to fill a position because you needed an opening and you had people coming in and you needed to fill it. The people that worked out shared values is a, is a pretty broad statement. We can dig down into that if you want. But, you know, ultimately there was a shared purpose and maybe it was just respect. It was respect for one another. They respected me as the owner, but I didn't often, I always referred to my teams to this day. I do that. And I have a very small team today. I always referred to my business as we, and people say, Oh, do you have a partner? And, and it was, yeah, I've got like 16 employees. No, but do you have a business partner? I go, no, I couldn't do this alone. I'd need, there's a, we, whether it's two of us or, you know, I used to have 20 people. There was always that we, that was always my mindset that I needed a village to, to be successful. One of the things that I noticed as I was going through some of the work that you do there at Success Performance Solutions is uh, some of the pre-hire assessments. And I really have found a lot of value. Uh, I've not done a lot of the ones that you have listed on your website, but DISC personality profiles, for example, is one we use a lot and love internally. We actually have a little placard on each person's desk that has their photo and and, and what their DISC personality type is. And it, it really helps especially somebody like me, for anybody who's taken the disc, uh, I'm a, like a 100D, like an 80, you know, I and very, very low S and C's. So I can be kind of a bulldozer a little bit sometimes. And knowing like what other people's personalities are really makes a big difference. But it's not just personalities, you've got all kind of assessments. So I'm curious, like what your thought is on pre-hire assessments, when to use them, how to use them, like give us some insight on that because I'm, I'm super curious like what your thoughts are on those tools. Well, I think everybody should use them all the time, um, so, so frankly. Uh, but ultimately, the what they do, uh, and, and there's a misunderstanding. I mean, a lot of people will call us a lot of small, we work with a lot of small businesses. That's our niche, small, medium-sized businesses, privately owned, um, although we have some large companies as well. But when, when people tend to call us is it's usually after they made multiple mistakes. We've hired three or four people. And they just don't seem to be working out. And it's sort of like people just lie and, and they don't do things. Hiring and going back through through studies, hiring people have never been really, really good at hiring. The, the time there were if you made a mistake, it wasn't as, as expensive. If you go back to, as again, 30, 40 years ago, even 20 years ago, if you made a hiring mistake, it was expensive, but it wasn't catastrophic. Today it's catastrophic. When when somebody when you hire somebody, it's expensive to hire them. It's more it's, it's often more expensive to fire them. It's disruptive. Uh, it's not good for customer service. It's not. There's a lot more to learn in your business. So where the pre-hire assessments come in is twofold. One is we often call uh, this was described to me years ago, and it still sticks. It's really an owner's manual for people. We buy products that we don't often read the directions how to get started unless we get stuck. But when something's as complicated as a human being, it's sort of like getting the, you know, buying, um, going to Ikea or Home Depot or uh, Lowe's and buying a piece of a, a furniture and it's unassembled. It comes in a box that ultimately most of us at one time or another end up looking at the instructions. We don't have that with people. We try to get that in an interview and the interview is coming from them where one of the questions we often ask, if the job could talk, what would it say? Would this person be good? So the assessments do a couple things. One is it's that, it's that owner's manual. It sort of exposes everybody's strengths, but also their, their warts, their vulnerabilities. What are the weaknesses? And it doesn't mean that, oh, they've got this weakness. Don't hire them. It's like, oh, they have this weakness. What tools do we need? How do we have to manage them? Will they be a good fit? How do they how do they fit onto that team? How do they fit with our customers? How quickly can they learn? So there's a multitude of things that you can you can test for uh, with that. The other thing that it does is, as I mentioned just real briefly, is we're pretty horrible at interviewing because yeah. interviewing requires that we have that skill of a of a of a, C, of a detective of an FBI or a CIA agent of a CSI. We we have to be able to not only ask the right questions, not just be interviewing for confirmation to make sure that we're on the right place, but also that uh, we're just not confirming what we want. We, we, we're biased. We want that person to work out. And we don't, most people don't like interviewing. So there, there's, there's a tremendous amount of bias uh, in that. And what the assessment does, it's really a third party. It's somebody on our shoulders sitting there going, uh, 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 you missed that. Hey, you, 
you you heard the answer you wanted to hear, but was it really the right answer? So what's another question I should ask to make sure that there's a consistency? What the assessments do is expose those areas, but then in every pre-hire assessment we have, we actually provide recommended interview questions. And those recommended interview questions are generated every time if you were applying for a job in my business and you answered some questions in compared to other people, which might be risky. Let's say I'm looking for somebody who's an extrovert and, and you answered questions that, well, sometimes I'm a little shy when I meet new people. That doesn't mean you're a good or a bad person, but what it says is, will you fit into my culture? And then there's a question that would be kicked out specific to that event. And again, it gives you the insight because a lot of times you have, do you have a list of questions we should ask? Or if somebody says this, what should we say? And the, the, the literally, this becomes the manual. Here's how you build it. And here's how you deliver, you know, here's how you do the interview. It doesn't make a decision for you, but it gives you that added extra comfort and guidance to make sure you, you are, you covered all your bases. I just love that stuff because it's had such a huge impact on our business. And like you said, it's not necessarily like a pure litmus test to decide if somebody's going to have a job or not, but it does help provide guidance. I noticed you've got quite a few different assessments that y'all offer. I'm curious, like how you decide when in the hiring process to use which one. Like for us, for example, what we do is we have a series of things that we do to get somebody to kind of a top three. Once we get to them to the top three, we'll put them to, through two particular personality assessments currently. But I don't do it before that because I just feel like it's kind of a waste to have a ton of people go through it when I haven't even narrowed them down. But I'm curious, like, when do you when do you like have people take assessments in the process and which assessments do you have them take? Does it depend on role? And that's a lot of questions, but I'm just curious. Yeah. And they're all really, really good questions. Uh, the, so let's talk about when, and you, you mentioned earlier how things have changed, you know, over 40 years and, or, or even 25 years. And they have dramatically how people apply for jobs, not necessarily how people look for jobs. And, and I'm, we're, I'm pretty vocal on this, uh, businesses in HR still hire like it's 1970. Many companies, you know, I, I have a job opening. I put a, I, I, I put a job posting out there. The job posting is that job description, which is really a legal document when it should be a marketing document. You're really trying to attract people to work for your business. I encourage people not to copy and paste the job description that they got somewhere. But, the, but this, you know, when I started business, we used to have, you know, it, the, the, the common, the process was, hey, we need to get it into the newspaper by Thursday or Friday so it can be there Sunday because that's the day everybody bought the newspaper. And then on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, you got this flood of, of uh, applications either through the mail or fax or somebody dropped it off. Other than people now apply online. Uh, and do it digitally. And it's very easy for a candidate just to hit a button and send a, a hundred resumes out. The, the company process hasn't changed a lot, but the way people apply for the jobs has changed dramatically. There's a whole other story behind that. But what that's done is it's also changed the emphasis is in the past, companies used to say, Hey, we're offering we're offering good wages. We offer benefits. We're giving people a job. They should feel grateful for that. We're going to pick the best person. There was that attitude among employers. What's shifted is there's now the employee, especially good talent. If you're looking for people that have the right skills and the right mindset and the right personality and you can fit on your team, there is a shortage. Even in today's pandemic, there is a shortage of qualified people. Again, we're talking about do they have one is do they have the skills and experience? And second is, can they work in your company? Can they fit in your culture, work with your team? So there's that two legged, you know, two parts of a three legged stool uh, that go along with that. What's happened is, is that if you test people early and that used to be the theme when I started this business, that was the theme. Why don't you save a lot of time and effort? Why don't you use the assessment to weed people out? So when they apply, have them complete an assessment right away. And that was the theme for a, a long time. The problem with that, it's a horrible experience because people apply for jobs and then they don't hear from the company and they go, I, I took time, I filled out their application, I took another 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, however long the assessment takes, and they and never heard from them. So I am not doing that anymore. And top talent has a choice. So 
the best practice is when do we take the assessment? And the best practice is after some type of an initial contact. So you still need a process to weed through the resume and the application and go, hey, we're interested in this person. I'm going to pick up the phone or I'm going to have a chat with them, whatever. We can do it through video, through Zoom, through email, through text, through phone, whatever it is. Uh, we're going to have a conversation. I'm going to engage you. And if it looks like that we sh- that that I still I personally as, a, as an employer want to pursue that, then I might introduce the assessment at that point. So that's one point. And the reason that you do it earlier in the process is it saves, one is it makes the interview better. That face-to-face, that lengthier interview you have is better because now you know a little bit more about the person, but you also have those interview questions that I suggested you apply. The advantage of doing it earlier is, you know, I mean, we're all strapped for time. If you have 10 candidates that means 10 interviews. It's likely that half of those are you're going to quickly be able to weed out. And what the advantage of doing the, the assessment earlier would be is that you might be able to weed out some of those people earlier. You might be able to have a shorter interview. You, the interview, you could focus on an area that concerns you rather than everybody comes in and we do a half hour to 45 minute interview. So it saves time and time is money. From an experience side, from the candidate experience, not turning them off and having them cooperate and having a better attitude about your business, then like you said, sometimes it's better to wait until you narrow it down to those three. But what we hear from clients is they kick themselves when they do that, is they say, gosh, if I would have had this information earlier, I would have interviewed them different or maybe not interviewed them at all because it was, you know, I had to move my schedule around and it was hard to get them in. And then it turns out that they didn't turn out to be a good fit anyway. So it's it's somewhere after that initial contact you have, and I know I say initial contact, some physical contact, whether it's phone chat, inter- interview, or if we ever get back to face-to-face, and probably the point that you mentioned before you get down to the final candidate, because again, a lot of the times people just kick themselves that they wasted that much time or they got fooled by not having that additional information. Yeah, that's 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 kind of what we do, and it's been... I uh, kind of we've really kind of taken a decade to get our hiring process to where it is now. And it's still a work in progress. I always feel like it's a constant work in progress, but it's tough to gauge somebody's behavior. It is. And and I think interviews, especially like, I don't know, they're, they're just only so good, you know, cause we can all show up for a day and put on our best face for 30 minutes or an hour. But what is that person going to look like over time? And what I love about those assessments is it, it does give me great questions to ask in some of those scenarios. Like if I'm doing a disc, if I know their disc personality, for example, and it says that they're a very low C, but the role that they're in requires a lot of monotony and high detail and hyper specifics and all this kind of stuff. I can ask a question like, hey, what did you find interesting about the personality test when you read yours own yours back because I always think when people some people many people haven't taken assessments like that before right. and then yeah. when they do they have a, a certain level of self awareness that kind of rises to the top and it doesn't mean they can't overcome that I mean you know details are not a strength for me and so I typically hire against that weakness but I also am aware of that weakness you know and I think sometimes you can't always fix all your weaknesses, but you can at least be aware of them and know that there are problems so that you can put people or things in place to help solve them. So, yeah, let, let me interrupt just a minute because we keep going back to DISC and I want people to be able to understand. So DISC is D-I-S-C. There's, sometimes it's identified by colors, by labels, by different words and so forth. But what, what, a, what a DISC assessment does is it identifies what energizes people. So we call them by the four Ps. So a D is energized by solving problems. An I is energized by influencing other people. The I is the influence. The S is in, is energized by maintaining a steady pace. And the C is energized by complying or being conscientious toward rules set by other people. So it really is sort of a motivation and energy test. But you mentioned you're, you're 100% D. And a lot of people equate 100% D with being a good problem solver. It doesn't mean you're good at problem solving. It means you're energized by solving problems. But you could not, you, you know, people that dive right in. They, they tell you what's on their mind. They assert themselves. They, they take control. But the result's not always good because there's other components to that. So DISC measures one part. It measures what energizes them. You, it sounds like you and I are, are similar. I'm a, I'm a really high D uh, if you haven't figured that out. 
but I'm also a really low, uh, I'm actually a high C, but on a personality assessment where on, on a disc, I'm a high C, which says you should be good with details. Mm. I am on another assessment that measures how I compare to others. I am in the lower 10% on details of enjoying doing details. So there's this mix, there's this mismatch of, of assessments. There's this mismatch of what we what we measure. And one is I look like other people. I'm energized by getting it right, but I mm-hmm. don't like going through the process. Hence, why did I leave dentistry? I loved everything about dentistry but dentistry. <laughs> the, the tedium of doing the same thing over and over again, of having that routine. We used to see I used to see 15 to 20 patients. I had two, I had, we had a a big office. We had two hygienists. We would have 60 people go through there and it was a process. It was a machine. I was energized by doing, by making it efficient and effective and having, you know, people return. I loved the paycheck at the end too. I, but the, the fact is, is when you came in and then I had to actually do it over and over and over again. I lost yeah. my enthusiasm yeah. for doing that. So again, you have to be careful when when you're using some of these assessments where DISC, I love assessments. I started my business on that. I used it in my dental practice 35 years ago to create a better teamwork. Uh, again, understanding what made people click, what happens when we have different personalities in place. How do we, how do we get cut? How do we get patients to understand our approach? How do we communicate on their level? All those things. I got it. And I started using it for hiring and then realizing that, oh crap, you know, there's other people like me that have a behavioral style of one type, and but underneath my engine is different. So I use, going back to which assessments do you use, I use the car as a metaphor. And, and the car is, is if you look outside and it's a sunny, beautiful day and there's a Ferrari or a Porsche or a Maserati and, you know, red convertible sitting out there, it's like, wow, I could imagine myself driving that. But you have no idea what's under the hood. Mm. What you see is that vehicle. You you can see a two fifty pickup, a Ford two fifty pickup, and a and a and a, and a, a sports car, a Ferrari, a Maserati, sitting next to each other. And you imagine one's good for pulling a boat up a hill, and the other one's good for a race racing and having fun on a on a nice sunny day. And the reality is, is somebody could have flipped the engines. You could have a Prius mm. engine in both. You don't know what's underneath there. So we use disc to say, here's what the behavior here here's what it looks like this person's going to interact we expect them to do something but then we flip the hood and we use a personality assessment and that you know on our site if anybody goes up and looks you know we've got pre we got a multiple ones but we've got elite we got big five we got uh, preview we've got outmatch they're all based on what they call the five factor model that's the engine that says how competitive are they? How organized are they? How detailed are they? How influ- do they have good interpersonal skills? The I says they're influenced, they're, they're energized by influencing others. The personality size says, are they any good at it? You know, what's their makeup? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's that combination of both. So you, you get the, you can see what the vehicle looks like. You can see what, what they should be good at. And then there's there's about one third of people have this difference that somebody flipped their engine, they tweaked the engine, and it may be better or it may be worse, but it gives you a better idea of that. And then we look then two other assessments that you can use. And again, these depend on the role, the type of business and, and how much you want to invest, how important is this decision. We measure cognitive skills, which is not how smart somebody is. It's not, oh, they went to, you know, Harvard versus a, you know, a trade school that doesn't make you smart or, or, or not smart, but is how quick the cognitive skills we measure are how quickly people learn and can process new information. So we test for logical reasoning. You know, does somebody you tell them something once they get it, they figure it out. You don't have to have a, a long formal training program. They just people just seem to connect the dots and get it quickly, while others uh, you tell them to do something differently doesn't mean they're not smart, but they look like a deer caught in the headlight the first time you, you share it with them. So again, is it important that you hire people that can get it quickly or is it, or is it okay? You have a training program, you're tolerant, you're patient, you're a good mentor. If it takes them three months to learn the program, no problem. Other people don't have that patience. That's not their business. They expect people to hit the ground running and you better hire people that have higher cognitive abilities. That's the horsepower. So you have the engine, and you have the right makeup, 
but does it have the right horsepower to do it? And then we look at, you need fuel to make the vehicle go. And that's what motivates people. You get a little bit about that from the disc, which I shared with you, but we actually have a, a, a tool called Business Motivators. And it says, what motivates the people? Are they motivated by learning, by money, by growth, by the community, by some doctrine, faith, or patriotism? What drives them at the end of the day? What makes them tick? What makes them go? And if you don't meet them, you can have all the qualifications, all the experience, everything else all in line. But if you don't provide them the right benefits, if you don't provide them the right environment, they're going to burn out or, or get uh, disengaged. So it, it's a it's a we make it simple for people. I mean, I'm, I, we're going through all the basics of it. You know, sure. it's, oh, crap. I mean, if I call Ira, he's going to he's going to go through all these tests. That's going to be like super expensive. It's going to take a long time. We don't have time for that. We're a small business. We're a startup. Mm-hmm. And the reality is people call up and I ask two questions. What do you want to measure? At the end of a year, here's here's my question that I would ask you for anybody who calls up is you and I are sitting, we're on the phone or sitting across from one another 12 months from now. You've hired this person. What is it that they will have to have had to do in order for you to tell me this was a great hire? Yeah. And you know how many people don't know that? The answer is it depends. I mean, that, that's not the right answer, by the way. But people will say, well, it sort of depends mm. or we're working on that. Well, if you don't know where you want them to go, if you don't know how you're going to measure the success, how do you possibly hire them? What are you what are you testing for? What are you interviewing for? You know, is it that, hey, they, they can breathe? <laughs> you know, can well, that creates talk? a lot of that creates a lot of um, disgruntledness, both from the team member and from leadership of a company because everybody's view of what success looks like is different. And I mean, I've seen that before in plenty of companies. I've seen it in my own company before where like the team member thinks they're, they're just crushing it and the leadership doesn't. But the problem ultimately comes down to like nobody defined what success was. A lot of times people define, I always say people define what minimums are. I'm like, let's stop defining what minimums are and let's start defining what success looks like. What does it look like to win in every single role. I really love just backing up a little bit though. And I don't want to harp too much on the disc because I know it's just one little piece of a, a much bigger puzzle, but it's just the one that I happen to know more about. So I like to talk about it <laughs> is, is uh, I love how you put that though with like solving problem, it's influencing people, you know, a steady pace and kind of complying with procedures, those four P's plus I love alliteration, but I have never really thought of the high D I guess I've probably read this before, but like energy towards solving problems that's exactly who I am. Like, I mean, I love like, give me the Rubik's cube of business and I'm in there going, all right, let's get this thing sorted out like that. That is so exciting to me. And and I see when and other team members where they're like, oh my gosh, this is so stressful, a new thing. And I'm like, I love new things. Like, give me a new thing. Let's solve it and let's figure it out. And, and also like combining that with the cognitive skills and the motivation is really interesting to me too, because I can think back to times where things didn't go well in some instance or another. And many times it's because there was a deficiency in one of those areas, you know, personality, cognitive, motivation, one of those things. And knowing those things earlier is going to allow you to build a better relationship and ultimately create more trust with that team member. And that's kind of where I'd like to transition to a little bit. You talk a lot about trust and building trust with a team. One of my favorite writers is a guy named Patrick Lencioni. And oh, yeah. one of the books that he has uh, that people should read if they haven't is called The Five Dysfunctions of the Team of a Team. And the very bottom layer of that, the first thing that has to be overcome is the absence of trust. Absolutely. So so let's talk about that, or I'd love to hear you talk about kind of how to build trust within a team. What are some kind of key takeaways that you could give people today that would have value there? Because I think that is just absolutely fundamental to team growth. No, and, and thanks for bringing that up. There, yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, the book's probably 20 years old. I actually have the manual sitting on my shelf someplace here. And and again, so as soon as I read that, uh, even before they, they now, uh, it's now part of the Wiley organization and it's actually embedded. They actually, they used to use Myers-Briggs as the tool. Yeah, when yeah. he first published that, he talked about using Myers-Briggs as the tool and then they switched it to DISC. So there, there's a marriage there, but I saw that, I saw that marriage before they even talked about it. Um, mm-hmm. And because I've never, I, I, I've personally done Myers-Briggs, but I've, I've, I've always appreciated the DISC model a little bit better. There's too many and, letters in Myers-Briggs. I can't remember all the letters. <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, there's 
types and the combinations. It, it's a great tool for development. I, I find everybody for self-awareness, for understanding yourself, but it was a much more difficult tool for people to understand. So how do I know? I mean, it's much easier to know that if, if I know you're a D and I'm a D, what do I need to do differently? Or you're a low mm-hmm. D. Myers-Briggs was, okay, so you're an INTJ and I'm an ENTF. Yeah, uh, that's right. Like, oh, that's how I feel too. Yeah, <laughs> unless you had, unless you really got invested in it, it, it was just harder to, to do that on a day-to-day basis. But what, what happens with, with the, the, you know, the baseline of the asset is, is by dysfunction is trust. This is always a great tool. If I'm a low, let's say you hire me and, and, and this would, was a mistake from people. They hired me because I'm a high C and they go, we need somebody who loves doing details. I don't love doing details. I shared that before. I gave up a career, a lucrative career. And because I was really, really good at it because of my values and my motivation and my high D to compete to solve problems, I just didn't want to do it over and over again. So if they hire me for the high C and then they find out that I get bored and I'm I'm tackling all these new problems and I'm chasing rabbit holes and I'm trying to solve stuff that is that's not even in my purview because I enjoy doing that, they're going to get tired of me. They're, they're going to get it's going to get old. So it's in, but what happens is I lose confidence. If you hire me as a high C and then I start making a few mistakes or I, or I procrastinate because it's a detail orientation, all of a sudden there's a, the trust starts to dissolve. And there's also another component of this, which was more obvious is that it's the way we communicate. What DISC is, is an observable language. If you understand the DISC model, you, on most cases, unless people were really good at being a chameleon, you could figure out who they are. You can map out their DISC graph by listening, by observing it. So if you're, you're watching both of us and, and if you're knowledgeable about DISC, it wouldn't be hard for others to figure out that we're Ds. It's the language we use. I'm doing this. It's, it's the language we use. It's the tone of our voice. It's the pace of our language. It's our it's our body language. It's all those things indicate D D D D D. The lights are flashing up here. There's a big D, D coming off my forehead. Even if it's not there, you're able to recognize that. It's an observable language. It's based on body your body language, your tone, your pace, and the words you use will reveal who you are. And I know there's a lot of people say, oh, I hate these tests. I hate kind of, you know, other people would know, isn't that personal stuff? And they go, they know it already. Other people are could describe your disc profile without you ever having to take it because that's who we are. And you go, well, I'm a pretty quiet, reserved person. Exactly. So you're probably an SC or a CS or, or, or a low I, you know, what, whatever it is, there's, we're a combination of all these things. So it, it's really important to understand in going back to the trust is if we have a team, let's say our core team is DIs, we're, we're the extroverts, we're the outgoing, we're outspoken, we, we, like to, we, we like to be in person and we're touchers and we're huggers and we're slappers on the back type thing. And then it's very hire, hard in a pandemic, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, those are the people that are really struggling. That's right. Uh, and then we hire a bunch of SCs who are thriving in the pandemic. You know, they like the personal touch, but they're okay with the distancing thing. The if if you hire them and you say, "Hey, Jay, what do you think about that? That's a great idea." You know, but you don't seem really enthusiastic. So you have this little conversation, and then you you know the DI group goes out and you go for our drink or our beer afterwards, and you go. You know, it doesn't seem like Ira's on board. You know, he's always like that. You know, maybe he's unhappy. You think we should talk to him? Maybe we need to treat him differently. You've just gone down. You've just broken that trust. No, it's not that I don't trust them that they're not honest, but I don't trust that they're part of my team anymore, that they're on board. And just because they they decipher, they process the information differently slow maybe slower maybe more internally than externally doesn't mean that they're not a good fit they just communicate differently when i i don't do a lot of this training anymore but when we did it we used to put up uh we used to say disc english french japanese and russian 
And I don't have the ability to speak in any of those except maybe a little bit of French. But if I if if this interview, if this interview, you and I were speaking a foreign language, the listen most of the listeners that you get on a regular basis would probably not understand the word we were saying. And it would, right. would have tuned us out. That's exactly what disc is. If you are a D and you're constantly using your D language, your D, D behavioral style to speak to the S, mm-hmm. they eventually tune you out. And if they tune you out, there's something, there's that, that trust gap yeah. that's there. And so we need to learn, you know, as a leader, as an owner, um, as a manager, just as a human being, as a spouse, (laughs) as a a boyfriend, girlfriend, uh, as a parent, we need to learn to speak the behavioral language of the other person to at least one is recognize it. We don't have to become fluent in it. I mean, ideally we do because then you become the chameleon. But at least to recognize that, hey, if I, you know, it's that old joke, if we if we go to a foreign country and we don't understand it, if we speak slower and louder, they'll understand <laughs> it. it. It doesn't work. That's what disc, right. disc is. S's and C's are slower and softer and D's and I's are faster and louder. Yeah. But you can't go to another country and speak that language. You can't go to another meet, business meeting and speak that language because people won't get it. It doesn't help. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about that, too, is as I first started to study some of this stuff, I found that, frankly, the people that like frustrated or annoyed me the most were like the super high C's who had a super low D. Because they were the opposite of me. Like I'm just ready. I want to move forward. I want to. I want to try the next thing. I want to. I want a new problem. I want something different today than yesterday. People that like do the same. This even comes down to like morning routines and stuff. Like a lot of like gurus and like business leaders. Like you have to have this morning routine. You got to get up at this time and do these things. And I'm like, that sounds so incredibly boring. Like I want every day to be a new adventure. That's that's how my spirit is wired, you know. And I've learned over time that that's not wrong. Like that's okay. That's who that's who God made me to be. I believe. And so I have to learn how to work within that framework. But when I'm working with other people who are wired for consistent procedure, consistent process, and they thrive in that environment, I've got to be able to move towards that and slow down a little bit and understand what they need in order to be successful. And I always tell my team with this stuff, it's like, it's not like I have to become a pure C to operate with the C. It's like they need to become a pure D to operate with me. But if we both are aware of ourselves, number one, and we're aware of each other, we can move towards each other. And I think that's where the magic is and, and where the growth is from a team, because over time, you need all of those people, you know, all of those different types, regardless of what the person, you need a variety of people to run a thriving business, I think. It depends on the industry, but especially in ours, you need a variety of people to succeed. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I you know, I've got uh, my assistant has been, been with me since, um, I, it's so long, I forgot when, when how long she's been with me, but it's, it's going on 18 years. We haven't seen each other in 10, uh, by the way. And she's okay with that. She actually, when I hired her, I hired somebody to say, listen, and, and I learned this when I had my dental practice. It took me a while to figure that out. As you said, you know, we, we start out, we make some bad mistakes. We made some good ones, but I wasn't sure what the formula was. It was like, was that was because I was a good interviewer. I was a good hire. I was a good person. I was a good manager, good boss. Or did I just walk out? And there was always that part that, Wow. You know, there was this part that I, I'm not sure why the chemistry worked, but it did. But when I hired her, we basically had an office. And but my interview was I'm looking for someone who could come into the office, looks at my desk and says, I can't stand the way that looks. I could never work in an environment like that. Do you mind if I come in on the weekend and clean it up? And because I can work in chaos. I mean, if you, right. saw me, you can't see my desk, but I can work in chaos yeah. um, for backgrounds and for, for other people. I don't, I, you know, I hide it. It's a lot hidden behind the screen. Yeah. You should see my desk right now. It's chaos, <laughs> <laughs> but I can work that way, but there's other people that can't. And so I hired people that said, that's driving me crazy. And my only rule was that you can organize it any way you can, because I'll figure it out. 
I just need to know where it is. And if I can't find it, you're available that I can text you, call you, pick up a phone and say, where did you put this? And you'll know because I'm not very good at organizing things that way. I can organize an event. Yeah. But the details, you know, what's that folder look like? What's the spreadsheet look like? Give me a template. I'm good with it. It's also my D. It's like, you know, I don't want to develop it. Just give it to me and I'll, and I'll get it done. Right. But you're so right. It takes a lot uh, to recognize what you need, what, what, and also to tolerate that other person because tolerating that other person who says, can you, I, I, I used to, I, I, again, an example that I, I talked about is that I hire somebody who's that high C, high S, you know, more patient, doesn't question everything I do, just sort of follows that doesn't mean that they, they don't question, they don't openly question it. They don't confront me with something they disagree with. But I, I, I want to encourage that. So I tell them that, hey, I'm, I'm in a rush. I need this done. Are you really busy? So I'll say, Allison, uh, hey, I need this done. Are you really busy? And she says, no, I'm, I'm doing okay. And then it's like five minutes later, it's like, hey, did you get that for me yet? And uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll get to it, right? I'm, I'm just finishing up another project. Oh, fine. Hey, I need it by, by, by noon. And I've got like another hour to go. And I'm like, I'm checking. She's not listening to me. I mean, what's she doing? Uh, hey, I just saw her get up from her desk and go someplace. Why isn't she doing my work? So I, my timetable was, and my priority was, can you get this done? And are you, and, and I gave her two hours to do it. And she says, well, I'm going to finish what I was working on first. I'm not good at stopping on a dime because I can stop on a dime. I can stop in the middle of a word and jump to another project. And then I'll go back to that other project. Yep, absolutely. There's other people that have to finish the line. They have to finish the paragraph, the chapter. Sometimes they have to finish the book. Yeah. And so I learned in that communication is, hey, I'm in a real hurry. Are you doing anything right now? And they go, well, I'm still working on something. Is it okay to stop? Or how soon do you think you can get it? Because I need it by this time. And then I have to back off and trust that they will get it done by that time. Or that they will come back and say, hey, I'm working on it, but I have a question. But as from our perspective, we sort of push that on them. Our expectation is, well, I did tell them I needed it in a hurry, but a hurry is, hey, stop right now. The fire, the building's burning down. There's a fire. We got to run. Or they heard it is when you're finished what you're doing, could you get this done on time? Can you squeeze this in? Can you change the order? It's amazing how many people don't get that. And it's so simple. Yeah. It's just so, it's so fascinating hearing you talk about it because like based on personality types, like I, I hear you describing me, right? Like, and, and, and these things are sometimes strengths and sometimes weaknesses. So it's because sometimes I can't get something done because I'm like the dog chasing a squirrel, you know, it's like a oh, new thing, new thing, new thing. It's shiny object syndrome, you know? And yeah. And same thing, like my desk typically is not as orderly as everybody else, but I still know where everything's at. Like I, I'm able to like get to what I need pretty quickly, even yeah. though most people are like, Oh my gosh, your workspace is a disaster. And I'm like, I know, but I thrive in this. Like, and, and my, like my wife is the opposite. She's, she's actually a high CD. They have like internal conflict. I feel like sometimes. Yeah, well, uh, I'm there. I, I, that's, that's my yeah, behavior right. over the years, but yeah, I'm a DC. Yeah. And so that's, my wife is a, a CD basically, but she needs, she's very good at organizing. She's actually very good at systems, very good at, at all that kind of stuff. And it's just interesting. We're, we're running out of time. I'm realizing, and, and we could probably talk all day. So I really enjoyed. I, I, just, uh, I just want to put one more perspective. Yeah. And it, it'll be real quick. Sure. There are emotions that drive these behaviors. Mm-hmm. And as much as we're talking about, hey, we need to hire D's because they're good problem solvers. We need more people like Ira and Jay. The reality is there's emotions. And the emotion that drives a, a D is anger. It's short. It's a short fuse. It doesn't mean we're angry people, but we, we, we get angry quickly. We have a short fuse. High eyes are driven by optimism. So the glass is always half full. You have to be careful with that because if, if everything that somebody says is, yeah, I trust that it'll get it done, yeah, and they're the internal optimist, then there's the other people that don't trust those people because it always they always think it'll work out. They don't go yeah. through it. So you have that. S's are the toughest to read. Their, their emotion is non-emotion. They don't show what they're thinking. And that's very dangerous because I had people that stuck with me for years, and then one day they slipped the, you know, the, the resignation letter. 
under the under the door because they don't like confrontation either. And they just sort of got burnt out. They tolerated as long as they could. So non-emotion is the yes. They're tough to read. And then the C's are basically fearful of making a mistake. They're a little bit of perfectionist. So th- those are the emotions that drive people. But it's really important because what we're talking about is on teamwork is what's the emotional makeup of that team. And if you have a bunch of high Ds, you got a bunch of people that have a short fuse. And then you combine them with people that are not emotional and they're just not sharing what their emotion is and they can be dominated. So it, it's, it's sometimes rather than looking at the, the four Ps that we've talked about or the, or the letters, you talk about what are the emotions that drive that. That determines your culture, by the way. People can walk into your front door when we can do that again or get on a Zoom call and detect your culture based on the behavioral style. What's the makeup of that team? And uh, again, that people will trust or not trust you based on that. Yeah, I I just love this stuff because it just leads to, number one, more self-awareness. And I think self-awareness is a superpower. And number two, better relationships with other people. And at the end of the day, all business is, is relationships with other people. I really, this has just been such a, a great uh, conversation. I've learned a lot and uh, I feel like you've really expanded my knowledge of these things, which I really enjoy. So thank you for that. As we wrap up, uh, two last questions. Number one, and this is kind of a big question, but I always ask it so I can't leave it off. What does work-life balance mean to you and how has it changed over time? So you have to have give me a short version of that. And then number two, where can people find you and get more information about you online? Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, that, that is a big question. I'm probably the world's worst person on work-life balance, especially through, through the pandemic, because my my family says is, uh, you know, you get up in the morning, you go down to your office and, uh, you know, we don't see you for a couple hours, except for if the bathroom in, in the house was in the basement, they'd never see me uh, for those couple hours. What I've learned to do, though, is dissociate. So it's probably not the ideal version of work-life balance, but I've learned that, you know, I, I come to work and I do my thing. And then when I leave, there's a there's a part of the time that I've got to devote to family. Uh, we've got a when you're a grandchild, he comes over. With my wife technically does the babysitting, uh, but he's 15 months old, 16 months old now. And every Tuesday and Thursday, I've carved out, carved out three hours, and basically I've canceled the point. And I, I don't. I, I now just block it out. But those are my times because it's important to be able to do that. And, you know, you can't kick the can down the road. It's like, oh, you know, it'll get better. I'll get older when I retire, when the pandemic's over, I'll have the time. And you you just never have that. We always fill up that gap. So work-life balance or life's work balance uh, to me is you just, you got to plan it. You got to put it in your schedule and it's got to be there. But I'm I'm probably the world's worst person to to really talk about what what it should be like, but uh, I've gotten better at it. As far as where people can get me, uh, my website, Success Performance Solutions, you can see the title up there. So it's SuccessPerformanceSolutions.com. You can also go to IraWolf.com. You can type in my name, Ira Wolf or Ira S. Wolf, and um, <laughs> I show up in Google. I'm all, all over the place. Uh, we do have a newsletter thick, sticking with the theme. It's called Googleization Nation. If you go up to one any of my websites that you can sign up for it, and we send out updates for my podcasts and live streams and free stuff. Awesome. Ira, well, thank you so much for your wisdom and insight today. I think it's been valuable to the building a business that lasts community and uh, wish you all the best. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks very much. Stay safe, everyone. Take care. I hope this episode has given you some ideas or inspiration that will help you grow your business. If you found it helpful and you know somebody else who might benefit from it as well, I would greatly appreciate it if you would take the time to share this with them, maybe on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, or even shoot an email over to a friend uh, with a link to this podcast in it. And if you haven't already, make sure you sign up for our email list at buildingabusinessthatlasts.com.